Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Core Console RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino, and unfortunately, Cole Swanson could not be here today. Uh, he had to go work and had to travel for work, so we had to uh, go ahead and do it without him. So in his stead, we have two of our uh, MUSC P4 students that are on rotation with me. Uh, we have Patrick Key and Nick. Let's go ahead and say what's up. How's it going? Hey, I'm Patrick Key. Yeah. That's right. We call him uh, Key for short. That's nope. <laughs> well, it's true. That's what we do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, the guest of the hour, we have Dr. Philip Hall with us today, the Dean of MUSC College of Pharmacy. Dr. Hall, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Absolutely. I'm Nick super uh, excited Pat. that you could take the time to do this. Yeah, oh, yeah. This is great. I'm glad to share a little bit and. Uh, my insights over the last uh, few decades. There we go. How do you like your purple headphones that we got you for the podcast? <laughs> I'm feeling they, royal. They look the good color, on you. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Purple is the color of royalty. It That's is right. true. Yeah, That's there right. you go. So um, kind of just to get everybody, you know, sort of started, how, you know, you've had a, obviously a, a very impressive career, but how kind of going back all the way to pharmacy school, um, I guess what got you interested? How did you choose pharmacy school versus medical school? And then, you know, kind of maybe walk us through some of your early career that right out of school and where you went from there. Sure. Um, you know, I when I went into college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know I wanted to help people, um, which I think is a common theme for many of us in pharmacy is we want to kind of find that way, whether that's medical school, pharmacy school, nursing school, et cetera, to kind of help people. And so when I was, uh, I went to the University of Georgia, Trivial Pursuit Fact, I went there to run. I ran <laughs> on the cross-country team. Um, but it, that, uh, my career as an Olympic athlete was not going to happen. So I looked at studying. And so um, one of the things I thought about was uh, pharmacy. You know, you got to use, uh, when I was sitting in organic chemistry, and I'm thinking chemistry major or something else. And so certainly that tough class. And so you think about what could I do with kind of those kind of prerequisites. And so pharmacy was a good one. I was fortunate to kind of shadow in Big B Pharmacy. And so I knew a little bit about pharmacy from that. And uh, so I applied to pharmacy school Uh and went and got a BS in pharmacy at the time. So this was in the 1980s. Most programs were still BS in pharmacy. Some had switched to the all-farm D, but still the vast majority were a BS in pharmacy. So that's what I did. It got my BS in pharmacy. And, and so um, one of the first things I did was get a job as an um, intern, uh, and I got it at uh, St. Mary's Hospital, um, a little community hospital in Athens, Georgia. And the, so I was just a tech in the pharmacy, working my way through the school. Um, and so how I got interested in oncology was the uh, chemotherapy that was made. Uh, the female techs could request not to make it. And so um, it ended up falling a lot onto me. Uh, and so you'd have to double glove, you'd have to wear a mask and all this when you prepared it. And it made me go like, man, and we're injecting this into people? Uh, that sounds kind of harsh, you know. And so, you know, they were always worried about kind of, you know, what we, exposure we would get as techs and pharmacists and all that. And yet we were given large doses in these patients. So you kind of wonder, why is that? And so that kind of set off my career down the oncology pathway, um, uh, you know, a lot of people that pick it, it's because, you know, they had a family member who had cancer. And um, mine really was more, why am I having to, you know, gown up and be so careful with this? And yet we're injected into patients and then they're going about their lives. And so uh, that was very interesting to me uh, that kind of started that. Um, I was very fortunate uh, took an elective in oncology in my BS program, which kind of introduced me to it. And so one of the things I thought about at that point is, well, how do I learn more about this? And so back then, 
you went out to BS, and that's where most people worked with. And but there were kind of add-on farm Ds, and so uh, one of my mentors at the University of Georgia. So one of the most important things you can ever have is a good mentor. My mentor said, you know, what you really should do is get um, your farm D, then do a residency in oncology, so you really know your stuff and you can really you know, help your patients. And so um, that was the path I then struck down was I then went to a PharmD program, went to the Medical College of Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University, got my PharmD uh, there. Um, and, you know, in those, I did oncology rotations there. It also kind of solidified that was something that I was very interested in continuing to pursue. So when I graduated from the PharmD program there, I applied to oncology residencies. Um, I was very fortunate to get accepted at the Audiel Murphy VA Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. So as you can t tell by my career, I'm kind of a nomad of the South. I made sure I stayed uh, in the warmer regions of the country. I did interview um, with the University of Illinois, Chicago in January. Uh, and, uh, yeah. I remember the plane. So the opposite, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, minus three when the plane landed. And they were like, oh, let's, you know, we're going to take you out to dinner. And I'm like, whoa, we're going out? Uh, Chicago's a very nice town, uh, but that was a little cold. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. The next week, I'm sitting in San Antonio doing my interview, and it's 65. So needless to say, that was how that decision came down. I'm like, hmm, minus 365. Let me think about that. <laughs> so uh, that was uh, how I ended up in San Antonio. San Antonio was a great program. Um, it had a huge phase one program. So this is new drug development. And um, that was something I'd had very little exposure to. And so that was very exciting to be there because we um, tried out a lot of new drugs um, during my residency, and then I stayed on two years and did research with them. Uh, and when I was there, so we used GRC-28077. Uh, you now know that as on Dancitron or Zofran, uh, but that was one of the phase one trials we did for an anti-medic, which really was one of the transformations in oncology. Um, we used LY010018, which is now gemcitabine. Hmm. Um, and so that was um, one of the drugs that we used. Now, we used a bunch, never made it as well. So for toxicity or not that much efficacy. Um, so there were hits and there were misses. Uh, which is always true of research, um, is the good things that happen and bad things. But several things that, you know, I kind of saw when I was in uh, that residency and kind of learned that were really kind of shaped, you know, kind of my life and then also how I view practice is I remember one gentleman came in and he gave a talk to all the oncologists and um all the pharmacy staff that really kind of in the cancer center that uh, kind of worked. And he talked about how the way treatment was going to go. And it was going to go from, you have breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, to being what type of mutations you have, how we can actually target it. And that's, you know, kind of the beginning of my understanding of what we now call precision medicine is instead of, you know, when you think of a drug like um, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, they're kind of like a shotgun blast. They don't target specifically the tumor. They kill rapidly dividing cells, but they also kill other normal rapidly dividing cells. You think your hair, your GI tract, um, and then your bone marrow. And so they really were kind of just a shot you know, a shotgun blast at you. Um, and so there was certainly a lot. We learned about all that, but certainly that was very fascinating uh, to me was, you know, could we, that this was the future, uh, is, you know, targeting these mutations. 
and that's certainly come to fruition, you know, and y'all are all seeing it now. Um, the other big thing that really I've witnessed um, from my residency onward is the development of immunotherapy. Um, when we first, when you look at um, treatment of cancer, you really think of three things. And uh, this was the way I was always taught and what I always saw. You think surgery, heal it with steel, radiation, fry it, or chemo, and that's blast it. Um, and so certainly those were the three big. Immunotherapy existed in the 1980s. I mean, if you really go back, it goes back to the 1800s. Um, Cooley's toxin, where a surgeon uh, injected into his patient's bacteria. Um, and that was because it was observed if you had like bacterial infections, when you had cancers, it can make some of them regress. And hmm. the way it did that is it just non-specifically stimulated the immune system. You got, you get a rip-roaring infection, you secrete all this TNF, IL-6, other cytokines. Hmm. It just happens to treat it. Uh, the cancer, it's, you know, and so it has a long history, but it had been very limited. So and that's called Cooley's toxin? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to so, look that up. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've, I've never, never heard, heard of that. that. Yeah, so that that goes way back. And so in the 1800s, um, and they would treat um, people that way. And immunotherapy, when I got involved with it, um, in the late 1980s, early 90s, was with IL-2. And um, IL-2 eventually got approved, but we were part in San Antonio of the group that tried, um, it was originally pioneered at the National Cancer Institute by Dr. Steven Rosenberg. And um, he did um, trials of IL-2 and shown in melanoma renal cell uh, he tried it in every cancer, but those two particular, it showed responses. Very small number, but if you got that response, it would last. It was durable. Um, maybe even that magical word of cured. Um, but that was where, you know, kind of immunotherapy was, okay, let's do this. And IL-2, if we remember, is just a T-cell growth factor. Um, you inject it into patients, their T-lymphocytes, but will become activated, their natural killer cells will become activated. Uh, so it's very nonspecific. Um, and then, you know, the other thing about immunotherapy is it doesn't, it's not directly cytotoxic. It's kind of stimulating the immune system. So what you're really counting on is stimulating uh, the T lymphocytes and the lymphocytes then do the voodoo they do, and that is kill the cancer. And so responses are few, and um, yeah, I think the response rate was 19% uh, with IL-2. But that was a big step forward, uh, mainly because of those durable remissions that would last years. And so people thought maybe we had cured them. Um, so that was a, an exciting time. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, our knowledge has dramatically increased in kind of the immunology field. We went from injecting gallons of IL-2 into people uh, into kind of more specific therapies. And um, you kind of see that. And that also is this evolution of kind of precision medicine is knowing what to target. IL-2, you're just, you are targeting T lymphocytes and natural killer cells, but you're just, non-specifically stimulating those populations, you know, and so all of that was kind of evolving. Um, you know, chemotherapy certainly was, is, will always be a big part of treatment, but certainly learning how to better target therapies uh, certainly came up. And so that's been the transformation you've kind of seen kind of over these last couple of decades is our understanding, you know, and this comes from great basic uh, basic research, understanding the mechanisms of cancer, what drives them. Um, you would say, you know, kind of precision medicine where, you know, where it really jumps out of the page of, to me, is a very old drug. 
um, and that is tamoxifen. Uh, we all know it's used in estrogen progesterone receptor positive breast cancer, but it blocked that receptor uh, to block the growth of breast cancer. So it was kind of the first, you have a target, you block it, and therefore the patient will respond. And so it's kind of precision because not everyone overexpresses uh, the ER and PR receptors. So um, that was kind of one of the older drugs. And I can remember when tamoxifen wasn't generic when it first came on the market. And, um, but, you know, those are, it's been very exciting to kind of see all that come to fruition. And it came from the, the talk in my residency year of, you know, we're going to be able to target this. And you kind of, you know, whenever you hear that, uh, I'm sure Patrick and Nick have heard in class and they kind of, yeah, yeah, that's the future. But, you know, and you kind of sit there and you really, and then you see it come to fruition um, that we are now targeting that. You know, the next big one um, out there was um, a rare form of leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia, nine, 10,000 cases per year, but it has one genetic mutation. That's the Philadelphia chromosome. Um, and a company no longer in existence, Siba Gaigi, developed an inhibitor of that mutation, uh, and that's a matinib or Gleevec. Um, they were able to successfully block it, and I, I can still remember sitting in uh, the meetings when they presented the first results. Phase one, we all remember... Phase one trials are the first steps in humans. So you're really kind of doing a dose escalation, find out, find out the right dose based on pharmacokinetics. It could be the right dose based on side effects. You really don't expect to see responses. But when they hit a certain dose, boom, everybody went into remission. Hmm. Not five, not 10, everybody. Uh, and that was like, everybody was like, Whoa, you know, that is stunning. Hmm. And so, you know, that, you know, and again, it's a rare cancer, but, you know, that targeted therapy, knowing what the target is, hitting it, and you put all these patients in remissions. Um, and, you know, that's a huge success story. Um, you know, and so that's kind of where we, You've seen that. Our understanding in immunology uh, has dramatically increased. We know that targeting these certain uh, CD proteins on the surface of the cancer cells, um, CD20 on B cell lymphomas, led to the development of uh, rituximab. And I remember the very first studies of rituximab not as dramatic as Gleevex, uh, but they would put, uh, they would get response rates in over 50% of the patients, heavily pretreated, which chemo would have never done. And so it was remarkable uh, with that. And so you've kind of seen that transformation uh, is our understanding of the basic sciences been transformed into clinical uh, uses how can we use the immune system? How can we target these specific receptors on the cancer? It has just been unbelievable to kind of see that transformation over the the last two years. And, you know, there's so many examples. I mean, now you look at um, really the one that jumps out at everybody's mind is Optivo, um, Keytruda. Um, we see their ads on TV a lot. Uh, but those are those have been home runs of beyond belief uh, in my mind, and I think in many people's minds. And why is that? They're going after, uh, particularly like um, both of those agents, uh, Keytruda and Optiva, are going after lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer. Um, when we tried IL-2 in that and tried other immunotherapies, eh, nothing. And then when you target uh, the immune system, uh, you hit a home run. Now, Optiva and Keytruda are a little bit different uh, mechanisms. Uh, they're 
their job is to take the brakes off the immune system. Uh, PD-1 uh, is a protein that's expressed on T lymphocytes to downregulate it. Um, you block that, for lack of better words, you know, in the way that people describe it, you take the brakes off the T lymphocytes. Now they're able to uh, go out and kill. And so that's been unbelievable uh, that they've shown better activity uh, or act activity equivalent to chemo um, in non-small cell lung cancer. So that, that's been kind of a home run, you know, kind of here very recently that I don't think most of us would have predicted um, five years ago, 10 years ago, definitely, because, you know, the immune response is usually very slow. Chemo works a little bit quicker. So most people thought chemo would be the mainstay for ever, uh, and drugs like this would be used kind of second-line, third-line therapy, and it's, it's been impressive to kind of see that uh, as it's developed. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that, that's pretty crazy because all of us, you know, especially the, even like, you know, I'm, I'm out of school now, but I've still barely even started my career time-wise, mm-hmm. and to, to think like you saw... Zofran before it was even an a, a, you know, actual approved drug is pretty crazy to me because they just kind of take that for granted. Oh, it's always been there. Yeah. Um, so that's that's pretty pretty awesome. Um, what kind of led you into the academia circle from? I mean, because that's that that sounds like one of the coolest jobs you could have as a pharmacist and dealing with those kind of drugs and the, that kind of research. What kind of brought was that? Just kind of part of the research portion that sort of led you into a classroom setting, or? Yeah, I mean, when I look back at, you know, when you said, when I went into the PharmD program, and then you kind of are looking at residencies, and then what's the next step is I kind of looked at, where do I see myself going? Um, I saw myself kind of more in academia, my mentors, whether at University of Georgia, Virginia Commonwealth University, or then uh, in San Antonio at the VA there, uh, they were all faculty um, at their respective colleges in San Antonio. That was a big training site for the University of Texas. Um, so I kind of saw that as kind of a logical step then is that. Um, I think a lot of us want to kind of do that tripartite mission of kind of universities, and that is service. In my mind, that was clinical service. Uh, um, for 22 years here at the medical university was a clinician rounding in the hospital. Um, research, I mean, we all like being part of kind of new discoveries um, and kind of adding to the literature out there and our knowledge. Um, uh, and then education, um, you know, it's certainly, you know, it's a way to pay it back. I mean, Mike, you're doing it now. You're you know, you're taking students, um, you know, you're doing that uh, in your clinics. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of, you know, what, you know, you kind of see is, you know, kind of is your mission is, you know, kind of looking at, you know, doing all three of those and kind of finding that mix. Uh, so I, I've always just enjoyed, you know, kind of those three. And um, I certainly kind of, you know, having been at kind of basically academic health science centers for all of those, you were kind of like, wow, this is, you know, really a, an environment I enjoy and want to thrive in. And so that kind of led to a lot of those choices I made about, you know, kind of doing a residency and, you know, and I picked the one in San Antonio cause it had a lot of research going on. Uh, cause it's really great to see that. And also, you know, it kind of helped you be a better teacher because you're kind of trying to stay on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. How have you kind of growing up? But were you always pretty comfortable as far as like speaking in front of large groups? You know, one, I know one of the things that I've talked to with students that do have aspirations of teaching and things. They like that idea of teaching, but they're really worried about uh, the fear of public speaking. You know, and even though it's a small crowd that they want to speak to of a students, um, that's all a big thing to overcome for some people. Is that something that you had to overcome or were you always just very comfortable speaking in front of people? 
I don't think, you know, you're ever going to be completely comfortable. If you said, am I nervous right now? I would say yes. And I'm speaking uh, to just three of you and our audience uh, in the podcast. Um, I get nervous when I still go in a lecture. And some of those lectures I've done probably 40, 50 times. Um, but I still get nervous because, A, you want to do a good job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, kind of number one uh, is kind of that striving for excellence every time, even though you don't always hit it. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's a skill you learn, you know, just like um, anything, you know, Patrick and Nick are going to have to, well, Patrick, you've done your grand rounds. Nick, have you done yours? Yes, sir. All right. So y'all are done. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, that thankfully. was, we all went through that. I remember we, you know, when I had to do that at uh, VCU. And what'd you do your grand rounds on? It was on OKT3, uh, which is a uh, monoclonal antibody for the treatment of uh, solid organ transplant rejection. Just came out on the market. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I think. Yeah, I still remember that because, you know, well, a couple of those slides were, were kind of ugly. <laughs> back then, we had to hand make our slides ourselves, you know, and so you would shoot them with a camera, um, kind of like the one Mike has over there. You, you shot them with a camera, and then you had to go have the film developed. And whoa, so, whoa. Whoa. Oh, you're throwing a lot at me right now. I'm, yeah. I'm not keeping up. Wait, so like you didn't just do it with your iPhone? <laughs> I, why don't you just tweet your PowerPoint? <laughs> but, but seriously, like you, you, you said that you had to hand make them. And what are you taking a picture of? So you would um, like, so, we're late. Really I'm sorry. So, yeah. so, so when I, the first time I ever got to use a computer was in the PharmD program. Really? Oh, and wow. That was a, and so you used, uh, you had those big old floppy disks. <laughs> and so you would sit there, and I remember the first time I ever used it. So I typed something out, saved it on that floppy disk, ejected the floppy disk, and I put it back in just because I was like, oh, look, it's still there. Because, <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, everything back in the day, like in college, you had to type out a research report, and you wrote it out, and then you typed it on the typewriter. Uh, and so it was very different. And so what okay. you would do is, so you would do like, um, kind of like PowerPoint, but you would do it in, like I remember the first program I ever did was Volkswriter, I think it was. But it, it was kind of like Word, and so you would print out what you wanted on the slide on a piece of paper, then you would take a picture of it um, on with film in the camera. You would take that film then to a developer, and they would turn it in. They some of, Most of them would turn it into slides for you. Hmm. Or if you wanted to really be cheap, they would just shoot it like slides, and then you would buy the little uh, slide, I guess they were called cassettes or something, that you would put them in. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was a lot of work back then because you would shoot them and you'd look at, oh, because you, you didn't have any idea if it worked or not. So when you would shoot with a camera before they were digital, mm-hmm. you'd shoot them with film, you just take a Hope hundred for the best. Pic- yeah, yeah, exactly. So you would shoot them, fill up that, and then you'd like develop it and hope, pray they turned out. So, and a couple of, of mine uh, were a little bit off-centered, and I was like, well, I hope nobody noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize. I think I got us off track. You were, you were talking about... Um, <laughs> that was actually, I've never heard that before ever, yeah. so that was great. I, 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 I had no idea that was a thing. So I, you, I didn't know PowerPoints existed before PowerPoint, to yeah. be honest. I thought it was like a Windows revolution to have like slideshows, you know? Yeah, so they would... Uh, but if you talk to... So if you talk... You know, previous graduates of MUSC back in the 80s and early 90s, is they'll tell you that there was somewhere on the third floor a camera room where they would go in and shoot their slides. So they would huh. print wow. them off on a computer and then they would go shoot their slides, kind of like I described it. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that was what how we... <laughs> how we did it back then, and that was very slow. And you were, you know, like if you, it was how you can draw things on slides and add color, all that, none of that existed. Everything mm-hmm. was black and white. Um, and you could take pictures of, um, 
you know, out of textbooks of uh, whatever you wanted to, of a slide of a, or a picture of anatomy or anything like that. But it was very crude compared to today. It was, it was very, but you would collect. And I can still remember, I finally threw them out. Um, but I actually had those slides from that, my grand rounds for till about top 10 years ago. I oh, wow. kind of finally threw them out. No. But, <laughs> but, but I had in my office when you walked in there and you would go into, you got into, you know, some uh, chronologically challenged professors like Dr. Basso <laughs> and Dr. Nappy. <laughs> and they would just, and we all had just uh, kind of um, notebooks full of these slides. Mm. And uh, you would just have them of you know everything and so when you go lecture you kind of like ah oh, where's that slide I'll get that one I'll get this one wow. and you would put them into the old slide carousel and do it that's it's really interesting so, so I, I do have to ask does it when you see like millennials now our age group and we're like gosh iPhone so slow for a second does that just drive you insane it's just a, <laughs> like it's you a, have no idea what we went through it was hilarious uh, you know because you know I think about it, I could still remember. You know, like, um, so we had to do a research project in my PharmD program, and so you had to write it up. And that was the first time I ever used a computer was put it on floppy disk, and you could type. And I remember, you know, typing the introduction section methods, and then you could save it. And um, it was amazing. That was like, you know, it, and the thing I'll tell you that you'll find yourself doing, it can't get any better than this. <laughs> and I remember that big old floppy disk, as big as that thing was. Is it? Look at, the, look ro- at. the robots are about yeah, to take it, over. Yeah, <laughs> that's, it. It, that's as good as it's ever going to get. And uh, you know, it's um, that's the you know you just kind of you you adjust and you know and all the challenges just you know kind of come up. Uh, you know, you get all this technology, you think, oh, it's as good as it's going to get and we've solved all the world's problems and no it's just now we've found a whole other set yeah no but powerpoint <laughs> is pretty great yeah. hey, hey those, we've made a few for better uh this month and to be honest they're gorgeous it looks like a professional made them because you know yeah. he did no i'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding um but, but it, this is one of those things that seems like man they figured it out that's it powerpoint's yeah. perfect like it's changed a lot. Just wait till it's in virtual reality. <laughs> My slides and all, over here. And we're all sitting here, except we're in different parts of the country. <laughs> That's where it's going to be in I mean, five I mean, years from now. But I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, you know, kind of virtual reality, and you know, uh, you look at you know, kind of the simple things. I can remember, um, I think it was Orthobiotech would have this booth at uh, major medical meetings and they would have you kind of as a virtual reality, but you'd go in and kind of see um, inside a blood vessel. And I remember you're just like, wow. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, this is, you know, now um, it's just impressive, you know, what, 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 what can be done. And, you know, and I think it'll help us all learn better. Um and I, and I think that's kind of the key is, you know, people, are, oh, you know, when I was, I had to walk 30 miles uphill <laughs> through snowstorm and all that to get there. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it was better. Yeah, that sounds uh, way worse. You know, you can, <laughs> it, it's different. It's much yeah. better to call Uber now and yeah, have yeah, them yeah. take you up the hill. I don't exactly. think so. <laughs> you know, it, it really is. Because like, I'm, I'm a very visual learner, kinetic learner. I, I when I can, it's very hard for me just to see something on a page or a, a slide even. And so one of the things we got at, at the PA program now at Charleston Southern is augmented reality, where we look at the um, the simulation dummy that we have had, which that by itself to me is pretty cool. I mean, a thing, you know, has a mm-hmm. pulse and can potentially bleed or whatever else is going on, you can make it do. And now you put these goggles on, or these like goofy looking glasses. You don't look very cool wearing them, but you turn them on and all of a sudden you can see through like the dummy and it's, it's all augmented reality, but you can see the organs and like pull them up into 3d space. Like I can put the heart here and I can, you know, watch the, the valves open and close. It was, it was the most, I probably look like a weirdo. I was just sitting in the room, just like, just blown away. could not believe. And I'm like, wow, this is making so much more sense watching the anatomy, like in physiology take place in front of me. I think, uh, for the visual learners, at least, I think that that kind of technology is going to be huge. But 
it's expensive, unfortunately, also. <laughs> uh, but as, as everything, I mean, uh, I can remember if you were the kind of all-in-one unit Max in the 19, late 19, gosh, you could have bought that, like 89, 90, were $5,000. <sighs> and that thing could, you know, you basically couldn't save anything on it. You put everything, <laughs> you put in disc. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and you were thinking, man, this will never make it. But, you know, that cost will come down. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you, you know, like, you know, now, gosh, it's amazing what our computer, I mean, my phone <laughs> can do more than my computer could have done, oh, yeah. you know, back then. And the cost is, you know, we all complain about, you know, the phone cost. But, I mean, they're, they're, they will come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so It's crazy to see where it's going. But yeah. the, um, so... Kind of take us through, if you don't mind, like your transition from um, doing research, academia, you know, being working, you know, as a professor, things, and then actually going to, you know, a full leadership role to, and eventually now, um, dean of the, you know, the entire college. That's that's you know, kind of a big jump. Yeah. So uh, walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny is, you know, I think you talk to a lot of people, they'll say, did you always envision yourself being a dean and that was what you can do. And the answer, I wouldn't have said, I said, no, and I never really even thought about it. You know, that was the person who sat in the office and made all the big decisions. And, um, you know, I would have, you know, I enjoyed, you know, kind of doing teaching, research, service. Um, I still do. Um, The way I got into administration was very kind of uh, different, uh, you know. Some people think that's know that's what they want to do. Um, I was chair of several committees within the college, and uh, several of the administrative uh, team, Dr. Arnold Carrig, Dr. John Comier, you know, kind of got to know me through uh, being in charge of certain uh, committees, um, and a position came open as the associate dean. Um, and that was back then was in charge of basically everything. The dean just said, "Here, you take care of all of this." Um, and uh, and so that's you know they asked me to apply for that, which kind of took me by surprise because if you'd have said again, you know, do you think that's what you want to do? And um, so that's what uh, I did apply for, and I was very fortunate to be picked for that position. I one of the things I did uh, was try to continue all four of those. So I went, uh, added on into administration. Um, I like to think I was successful in it. I probably was not, but because it is a lot to do. Um, but it, you know, it was really a great experience as the associate dean. Uh, and then kind of from there, kind of moving up uh, to the dean. Um, I, for a short period, tried to uh, kind of continue service as the dean and that was just way too much just um with kind of the administrative duties but you know my heart is still as a faculty member um that the importance of those three missions you know teaching is critical you know giving the students the best uh background so that they can grow uh, research is important for many ways. It's a good exposure for the students. It's also how we move uh, kind of treatments forward. I mean, you know, that is, you know, one of our fundamental things we can do wherever we practice is kind of move things forward. And um, there are many different ways to do research, but that's, you know, I think critical. And then, you know, also service. Um uh, whether that's in the college or uh, to, in the hospital or clinics, uh, pharmacies, wherever that is. So, um, you know, it's I still see that as a very important part. Of, I don't get to participate in them as much and um, as I can, as I used to. So, but, you know, it's still a lot of fun, you know. And uh, But, you know, administration is you know, kind of a, a different role. Um, I think your major job is to promote others. And that's, you know, something I think is it's not about me, it's about other people is kind of promoting their careers, getting them 
uh, promoted, getting them uh, their careers off to better starts. And so that's kind of my thought about kind of, you know, administration. My job's not to be the man. Uh, my job is to kind of stand up behind and kind of hold other people up and kind of move them forward. Well, and I think that's a huge, you know, just aspect of a good leader, right? It's elevating the people below you and not just being like, no, 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 they're down there. I'm the one that's running the show. And when, when you do that and you elevate the people below you, one, not only is the respect automatically reciprocated in most cases, unless, you know, there's always the oddballs out, but for the most part, you know, the, the respect is there and that elevates you just by default of like, mm. look at my team and you know, that it comes back and that's how you can, I feel like that's a, at least my personal opinion, that's how you can see a good leader versus someone who it's, it's forced and like, it's all about them and promoting their own career and they just could care less about the people below them. So yeah, that's definitely a great quality to, you know, to have. And, um, one, one thing, and I'll tell you this very honestly, like that I've liked so much is I feel like you're, you know, in this very important position, but yet you're extremely open to new ideas. And like, you can tell that you really do care about the university, you know, like you and I, and then Dr. Beju Shah and Dr. Mm -hmm. Yuri Peterson, like all met, um, you know, one morning and you took time to actually talk to us about possibly using some of these social media platforms and things to promote the school. And there's so many people who, especially after an impressive career like that, would just be like, I've done it this way. It's working. Like, why are you bothering me? Yeah. And I, I think I was just impressed with the fact that you were, you know, open, like, okay, well, let's see what you got. It's, you know, especially, you know, me, I'm only been at school a couple of years and, you know, I don't even you know, necessarily work directly with the university other than precepting and things. So it was very, very cool to see, you know, you being so open. You know, I, I made a, we all made a couple of suggestions about like Instagram, for instance, and like they, you were implementing them like a week later, like yeah. bringing students value. It was really cool to see. And, and I want you to know from the, even an outsider looking in at the university, like uh, it's impressive. And I, I appreciate it and seeing it because I get discouraged sometimes when I see some, you know, people in leadership roles just kind of stuck in the ways and they are more worried about like, well, what if I promote this and it's wrong or it doesn't work, then it's going to look bad. I mean, I feel like you're like, okay, let's see what we can do to improve the, you know, overall outlook in the future of the, you know, of MUSC and the college of pharmacy. And, uh, you know, you can definitely tell you're in it for the right reasons and promoting the people like you said, the people below you. Cause, um, I think a lot of times people are looking just for the short term yeah. gain. Well, well, thank you. But yeah, I, I always think, you know, um, you know, one thing of, as any of us, you know, we always espouse all, uh, our graduates is to be lifelong learners and you know you've got to really do that i mean everything changes um you know and so i think that's one thing that's very important and you know and i think it's is look around you as you know there you know i'm very blessed to be around a lot of very talented people and mike you're certainly one of those and that we can you know learn as you know I think, you know, in any leadership role is, you know, it's not about me. It's what, you know, the right ideas, wherever they come from. Um, you know, one thing that I've certainly learned as a leader is kind of brainstorming and um, is a great way to kind of bring out a lot of different ideas. And a lot of people will, will think, you know, it's just let's go do this. But, you know, when you get more perspectives in there, um, well, why don't we try it a little bit this way? Or why don't we, you know, tweak it a little bit that way? As you end up with a much better product, um, you then just saying, you know, I think it's this, and this is the way we're going, and that's the end of that. Um, and I think any position you're in is one of the other key qualities you got to know is, you know, um, you know, a plan that you can't change is a bad plan. And I can't remember whose famous quote that is. It's I think it's, um, it's a one one of the ESPN commentators. But um, you know, if you not willing to change, not willing to kind of listen when people can say, well, you know, this isn't working. Why don't we try this? And you're going like, oh, I'm going to never change. Then you're in for a bad situation. So you know, you got to be able to change, and you got to. Because that is 
the way the technology changes, everything changes, you know, you know, who would have thought, um, about social media, how it would have taken off. I mean, you know, um, and changed our lives and, uh, you know, God, you know, you're just kind of like stunned. I mean, you know, I grew up in the newspaper, you know, where the newspaper came in the morning and in the evening, y'all probably are stunned. They used to come twice a day. Uh, and that's how you got 90% of your news. It would be that or, you know, the evening news. Uh, and now, I mean, it's all out there at your fingertips constantly. So you got to change with the times. You got to look at everything around you. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting. You'll have, you know, people that will talk about social media in this way of, you know, they'll, they'll attribute like elections and the things that have happened with other foreign governments, like, you know, oh, they've interfered using Twitter and all these things like that. And look how these, these horrible impacts they can have. But then when you talk about like, well, what about with the university or how can we use it? Oh, that's not that important. Like you just said it affects the free world and now it's all of a sudden it's not important anymore. It's just interesting to see how, um, just, kind of, I guess, stuck in your ways people can get because what's worked in the past has always worked, you know, and we're going to go into that shift of when the radio switched to TV and mm-hmm. people were like, oh, that's a fad. Yeah, Come yeah. on. Exactly. They never saw 4K. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think that uh, it's it's good. I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, you, you've looked into some of that and just, you know, I'm, I'm excited to kind of see the, the future and all that with MUSC for sure. It's, it's exciting to watch even, even from the outside looking in, it's been, uh, it's, it's been cool okay. to, to see. So you, you've mentioned a couple of times about like, you know, continuing being lifelong learning and stuff. That's one thing that, you know, I've, I try to promote myself as well, um, that you need to learn every day, like find something. I know, uh, Dr. Wayne Ward has said multiple times that if he, he feels that if he ha- hasn't learned something that day, he, he failed at his job. And, you know, I, I've always respected that. And how how do you think that plays out as far as, you know, you said you never looked into, you know, you never considered being a dean or anything like that. Um, how do you feel like that plays in, like learning every day and, and basically opening new potential doorways? How important do you think that is for students now, especially with the way technology is changing and stuff, to, to keep those doors open? Because most of us have no clue what we're going to be doing 10 years from now. So Correct. Do you feel like, um, you know, that's something that literally everybody needs to take extremely seriously? As in, in oh, yes. I mean, that, I mean, I think, you know, um, so much of what, uh, you know, we teach you, you know, certainly will change. You know, guidelines change, and, you know, sometimes the guidelines are dramatic changes. Most of the time they're a slow boat to China kind of, you know, change. So, um, but... You know, when you think about, you know, kind of kind of lifelong learning, you know, you, you must kind of continue, you know, after. And that's one of, the, I think, our jobs is to teach you how we all do it. And there are many different ways to do it, uh, kind of remain that lifelong learner. But you're going to have to teach things. I mean, things, you know, like and I look back over my career, the... Uh, immunotherapy that is out there now from rituximab to trastuzumab, Herceptin, all those, none of those existed. Um, And so those are things that really have changed the way we practice in oncology. And so you need to know, you know, understand that and be able to adapt to that. Um, I think, you know, part of that is, and there are many different forms of that. One of the ways I've done it is I've remained board certified. Uh, You have to do a lot of um, continuing education uh, to maintain that that's you know kind of a strategy it's not the only one that's you know one that I've chosen uh, based on what kind of works for me or how I learn um, and so that's you know one way to do it um, I think you know kind of constantly reading in your field um, you know I you know try to learn something every day and then I read both in leadership and in pharmacy, I mean, there's so much going on in pharmacy. Uh, they try to kind of keep up with, but you do try to have to kind of, you know, kind of keep up with that. So I try to keep up things in kind of both those fields. And, you know, because the one thing I would always tell people is never close the door and never say never to anything. I will never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, because you never know. You know, you don't know where life will lead you, uh, and so you need to kind of continue to develop those skills, um, leadership skills, whether you're uh, at uh, your local pharmacy or you're head of a university. The skill set's still the same. The dynamics are a little bit different, uh, but dealing with people is always going to be the number one thing. I think if you'd said to any of us, you know, in kind of our practice site, it's dealing with people. Uh, and that's always a, a skill you can learn to improve on. Um, and, you know, as pharmacists, you know, that is, you know, we deal with people, you have to deal with people whose education level may be as low as in elementary school to, you know, physicians who are extremely smart. Uh, and so you got to be able to do that transition. I think that's probably the, you know, kind of, those are skills and skills can always be developed, honed. And, and if they're not used, they will fade away. So you got to always kind of use those and kind of move those forward. Absolutely. I, 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 it drives me a little crazy. I'll just go ahead and say yeah. it. When I hear, you know, some pharmacists like, oh, man, I actually had, a, I've told this story multiple times in like talks and things, but I ha I've actually had a pharmacist tell me that like when I was a fourth year, just go ahead and, you know, really enjoy this time because this is the smartest you'll, you know, ever feel. And oh, I I've been told that a few I, times. I, I remember thinking like, what? Just like, this is the height of your education. Like, yeah. I hope not. <laughs> and and I look back now. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's like, how, how sad is that? Could you imagine if you're certain, and this is the, I've just made this joke before, but like, you know, could you imagine if you're on the table and anesthesiologist about to put you to sleep and the surgeon's over you going, man, I don't know. I just really wish I was as smart as I was in medical school. <laughs> you, you would be like, you get me out of here. Yeah. And I just, it's crazy. I, I don't know why, but that, that mindset, I've heard it from more than one person. Apparently Patrick has too, but it's sad to me. Like, how could oh. you accept that? I'm like, I look back now and I thought I knew some stuff when I got out of pharmacy school and I realized I was like, wow. You know, I did not know that that much when I first graduated, you know, comparatively. And now I hope four years from now I'm, you know, saying the same thing about myself now. But it's just, yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, if you're not being a lifelong learner, one, you're going to get potentially complacent and stuck. And then there's that whole aspect of, like, now you feel trapped and, yeah. you know, but with the way things are changing, if you're not keeping up with stuff, you're, you're behind after a couple months now, I feel like, if, if you're not keeping up with information. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, I think what we probably most of us do um, is become more and more specialist as we, you know, and that can be defined in multiple different ways. But, you know, there are things that, you know, when you're in the PharmD program, you learn everything uh, from pediatrics uh, to critical care patients. And eventually you kind of pick, you know, wherever you end up practicing and that's who you see. But, uh Whatever area you pick, you're going to need to keep up because things are rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and, you know, that's the hard part. You know, that's the great thing about today is we have all this technology and all that. The bad news is there's so much coming out. You know, I don't think your phones and iPads of the world could ever keep all that information that you need kind of out there. I mean, that's the explosion of information is fantastic, but it's very difficult yeah. to kind of you know, navigate. navigate and know what is all out there because yeah. it's changing so rapidly. So what's, you know, all your career kind of like looking at it now from where you're, you're the position you're sitting now, looking back at everything, where do you see yourself going from here? Like, do you have certain goals that you've set, or you just kind of, kind of, um, see what comes at you and see what you can conquer next? Mm -hmm. Or do you have any plans and goals for you know, the coming years? Well, I, I think you've always got to have goals. Uh, you know, you can definitely say I'm on the latter end of my career versus the beginning of it. Um, but you always want to have goals cause you always want to, you know, know where you're going. Um, uh, and you know, cause that, that's, I think I'm very goal driven. I think many of us, you know, kind of in pharmacy are very goal driven. Like how can I 
improve? What can I, what's, where do I go from here? And I think that's, you know, certainly one of the things I look at is, you know, uh, where do we make the college better? Um, what are the, the challenges of the university? And I think they're in education, the laundry list is large of, you know, kind of challenges that uh, we face. Uh, but, you know, with those challenges, and it's a cliche, but also comes opportunity. And you gotta, mm-hmm. you got to recognize that and recognize how am I going to, you know, kind of make this situation better and how can I move the college, the university, the profession forward. Um, and, you know, so I look at, you know, in South Carolina, one of the things we're going to be looking at is updating the Pharmacy Practice Act. That affects all of us uh, in pharmacy. You know, so you look at things like that or, you know, how can we move that forward? You know, immunization is a huge step forward, but how do we continue? We don't want to rest and say, well, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. You know, we want to kind of keep moving, the, you know, kind of it forward. You know, what are, so, you know, you look everything from the profession to the college. Uh, you know, we're excited about um, kind of moving forward with a building project. And so certainly that's a, an exciting time to kind of look at uh, as well. Lots of challenge, lots of work, but a great goal in front of us that we can change uh, what we're doing. Uh, and so you know, continue to evolve the PharmD curriculum. We've started a curricular revision, you know, and certainly we recognize the importance of continue to develop the students, you know, and uh, particularly, you know, I think we do an excellent job in basic sciences and the pharmacotherapy, but also those soft skills, how to make them more empathetic with their patients. How to, those are skills you can teach. Um, you got to still continue to develop them, but, you know, kind of look at that curricular revision. How can we make our students even better? How can we better prepare them for the next steps, you know, as the profession evolves down the road? Because, you know, I think we are the most accessible healthcare profession. Um, there are good healths because of um, kind of that accessibility and uh, kind of need of primary care providers, we can step forward, but we've got to train you the right way. I think we've trained you in the past the right way, uh, but I think there are, you know, kind of even more skills. You know, we taught you immunization, we taught you diabetes management, but there are other things we need to kind of, to continue to evolve you as a frontline provider. Absolutely. So, you know, just to kind of wrap up, can you give us a little preview, I guess, of what's to come in the oncology world? What's, uh, you know, if it's someone who's a lot more um, in, involved in it than the three of us, um, what do you kind of uh, hear on the streets, as they say? Yeah. I mean, I think you'll continue to t- continue to see the kind of kind of the development of kind of precision medicine. Um, I think, you know, when people think of that, um, you know, people also think of personalized medicine, and they're kind of synonymous terms. Precision is the more preferred term. Personalized means we're kind of developing drugs specific for you, which right. now some compounding pharmacists do. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you talk about large-scale drug development, what they're talking about is certain targets, and is our kind of basic science understanding kind of continues to evolve, we'll develop more and more targets uh, to treat cancer. But I think what you're going to see, you know, kind of are kind of like the Herceptins of the world um, where we hit certain sub-segments of the cancers um, as we kind of continue their development. I think immunotherapy, the key is going to be how to move it into the front line. There are some front line studies where we use it. Um, and then ultimately the way you will change the treatment is using immunotherapy as adjuvant therapy. Being mm-hmm. looked, Certainly there are trials coming out in melanoma, but certainly in other cancers as well. How do you combine it with chemotherapy? Chemotherapy is an immunosuppressant. It wipes out uh, your white blood cells. So how does that affect 
kind of the immunotherapy and how do you uh, synchronize those. And mm-hmm. so those are lots of challenges coming down here in the very near future um, kind of with it. But um, I think you'll continue to see, you know, pharmacogenomics, um, which is a type of precision medicine. Uh, you know, we think about um, certain enzymes that were very critical, dihydropyrimidine, dehydrogenase, DPD, and is the blocks the la- or is the key um, in the catabolism of 5-FU. If you're deficient in that enzyme, you can't metabolize it, and we cause horrendous side effects. I think we've learned uh, how to test for that, um, and I think there'll be more genetic testing of that is of these agents because we certainly see in our patients, um, you know, we'll give them a drug. Some, the vast majority will do see kind of normal side effects, and then they'll see some that get these horrendous. Is and I think pharmacogenomics is going to move more and more to the forefront. Um, I know of the examples mostly in oncology, but certainly they're going to be in every aspect of our lives because um, from hypertension uh, to any of the cardiovascular diseases, certainly in the treatment of um, uh, DVTs and PEs. Um, but I think pharmacogenomics is, you know, if you said young man, young woman, what would I, you know, kind of focus on in my studies? I think that would be one thing I would consider hmm. is pharmacogenomics and how it will affect, you know, kind of um, therapy down the road. Right now, you don't see it as much because it's in certain drugs, um, particularly those with the narrow therapeutic index, which are a lot of the oncology drugs, uh, but you will see it, I think, you know, kind of coming out more and more um, down the road. So that would certainly be one thing I would think about. Are there programs set up right now to do like a residency in pharmacogenomics? Is that a thing yet? Uh, there are a lot of certificate programs, okay. uh, masters um, in it. Um, again, you know, um, you know, how to apply what we do know as of yet and what's kind of the future. Um but uh, I don't think there are any specific residencies in it um, because, you know, again, it kind of transcends uh, many different disease states. Um, and probably the, the one you'll see it the most in as of today would be oncology. Gotcha. Nick, you gave me the first uh, pharmacogenomic resident I just decided <laughs> for you. <laughs> I don't, know where, you're gonna, I don't know where you're going to yeah. have to live, but right, we're going to figure it out. It's going to tell us both what we want to do. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you guys signed up for my rotation. You knew what you were getting into. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Dr. Hall, I really appreciate Sure. Um, anything else that you want to add? Well, you know. No, you... this has been a great conversation. Uh, thanks for having me. It's always great to see you all again. And, um, yeah. You know, if I can, maybe you can invite me back if I didn't ruin your ratings. No, no, no. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. It's, it's been uh, good having you. We, uh, we've had uh, Jordan Miller and a couple wow. other of, uh, you know, people on here. Because oncology is definitely something we have to bring in a guest because I do not feel comfortable uh, trying to pretend like sure. I'm an expert. Jordan's anything, a great so. guy. It's good to have, uh, have you know, you guys that are willing to come in and talk and share your expertise. And, uh, you know, I just appreciate you doing this for us. Sure. Um, the, uh, as far as the school's website, you, can you put that out there for us? Um, if, if somebody's interested in coming to MUSC, if they're like a undergrad student or anything like that, um, what do they, what do they contact the school to get more information? Um, you can certainly, uh, look at the website at www.musc.edu, uh, and the college of pharmacy. And, uh, we'd love to, uh, we have lots of information on that. Uh, Miss Jenny Bag would be our contact. Uh, she would uh, love to give you a tour of the college, and uh, we would love to have you come uh, see us. Uh, we are on an academic health science center, so we are open year-round. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's interesting to see, like, when you look at, you know, I won't mention other schools, but maybe another school that's not a a medical, you know, a true medical university and they're just on a college campus, the dynamic, how it shifts from, you know, you're, yeah, okay, I'm in pharmacy school, that's great, I wear my white coat once a week, to being on a, when you're just completely immersed 
in the medical world when you're being on like MUSC's campus. It's just, I feel like to me, that's, uh, that's a no brainer as far as trying to select between schools. It's just such a different feeling. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we are nothing but health professions. So oh. it is a, it is a different vibe and it's a very good vibe. Yeah. Uh, you know, healthcare, you always got to remember is a team sport. And so that's the way we train you is you have to work together because there's so much information out there you got to collaborate. Absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right about like the different, the, the vibe of MUSC because like just to be able to go from the college of pharmacy to the library, you have to pass through the hospital. And mm-hmm. we say that like such a casual thing, but how many places are there where you have to pass through the hospital to get to where you want to go? Yeah. You're just, yeah. you're just surrounded by it. It's just, and it's just the environment. Yeah. It's just a much more professional. You just feel like, yeah, white coats everywhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. It makes you feel like I need to start learning some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So I still like to go down there now. I just like be like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> still a part of it. But um, no, we would appreciate you do taking sure. the time. So thank you all for listening. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, definitely leave us a rating on iTunes or give us a subscribe on Spotify or iHeartRadio or wherever you listen. Um, we really appreciate it. If you have any questions for me personally, you can reach me at mcorvino at coreconsolerx.com and, uh, or hit me up on any of the social media platforms. I'll get back to you as quick as I can. And we will see you guys next time. Later. Thanks.